talk about uh, make a guy feel nervous as he's about to stand up with an iPad. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> they're all gone. He did that on purpose just to freak me out. Thank you very much, Doug. Good morning, everybody. Need some enthusiasm now? Um, welcome. Uh, welcome to Grace on this Sunday morning. It's good to have you with us. And it's great to be starting a new series. Um, Jacob, stick up the slide here. We're about to dive into the book of Nehemiah. And those are the big themes of Nehemiah, repent, rebuild, revive, and we'll get to these in the coming weeks. But we're about to dive into this Old Testament book. And I want, this is going to be a bit of information, but I hope it's helpful and I hope it's good. But, but I want to get a, build a bit of context on it before we dive into it. Because as we start books in the Old Testament, they can seem like these imaginary things that happened in a galaxy far, far away. We have no idea where they fit. We have no idea where they belong. But they do belong. They're part of the, the Bible story, but they're also part of the world story. So stick up this first slide here. So we're about to enter the 5th century BC. Yes, it's before most of us were alive. Not all of us, most of us. But... <laughs> Besides the Bible, there were other things going on in the world. So, for example, the Battle of Marathon, the start of the 5th century BC, where, what's his name, Pheidippides runs from Marathon to Athens, 40 kilometers, and we're still running that race today. It just happened in London last week. We're inspired to keep plodding the pavement. That happened at the start of the 5th century. Uh, uh, probably a more famous battle actually happened in 480 BC, when Leonidas and the 300 Spartans stood up against the mighty Persians boldly and got destroyed. But we've seen movies about it, the, the Battle of the 300 Spartans. Continuing the death theme, Confucius, the famous um, Chinese philosopher who we now read in Ch uh, fortune cookies all over the world, died in 479 B.C., and the 5th century must have been a big century of philosophy. Philosophy exploded onto the scene because Socrates was born in 469 and Plato was born in 428. These are things actually that have really shaped our world today, 5th century BC. And right in the middle of that, 445 BC, you see the dot right in the middle, Nehemiah wasn't born, but that's just about when Nehemiah prays this prayer we're just about to read in the middle of 5th century. And then to land it slightly closer to home, London had its origins as early as 400 BC, so just at the end of the 5th century. All that I learned on Google this week, <laughs> and you could explore it too. But just to remind us that the Bible story are not imaginary stories from a galaxy far, far away. They're stories of our world that happened in place, in time, and that's where we're starting today. But beyond that, flick up the next one, there's a biblical context. So where is Nehemiah and where does it fit into the Bible? So Nehemiah, if you flick open your Bible, it's about a quarter of the way through. And it's about halfway through the New Testament as you're going through those books. Well, thank you very much. We're getting, whether it's John reminding us to go to kids or, thank you very much, the Old Testament. But how many of you know that Nehemiah was probably the last thing that happened in the story of the Old Testament. So if you were to line those books up chronologically, the only book that might be after Nehemiah would be the book of Malachi. After Nehemiah, the only, well, we don't know. There's 400 years of biblical silence before Jesus. So the whole story of the Old Testament leads up to Nehemiah, which is looking ahead to Jesus. So 
Maybe that's helpful to get that context. But what's the biblical story that leads up to Nehemiah? And I said to Josh, I'm going to try to give my classic, how do you sum up the Old Testament in five minutes? What's the biblical story that leads up to this book that is so important right here and right now in 21st century Ireland? So here it is. Genesis 1, next slide. God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. Mountains, valleys, fish, animals, people. And the amazing thing we know about Genesis 1 is that it was so good that the people actually walked with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. There was this beautiful relationship, but it didn't last. Genesis 3, we know there's the fall, and and basically Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent into into believing that knowledge for something, I want to know this thing, good and evil, was more important than a relationship they had with the creator of the universe. So they were deceived, but they also chose and went against God, and because of that, separation from God, the creator of the universe, happened, and death was inevitable. But there's good news. Because God's plan was always to rescue his people. From the very start, God worked a plan in motion to save us. And that plan started with a people. And the first person was Abraham. We meet Abraham and he's old, he's homeless, and he's childless. He's already in a foreign land. And God comes along and tells him, I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to give you more children than you can count. And your family, in fact, will be a blessing to every nation on earth. That's a pretty good promise to a 75-year-old with no home and no kids. I'm going to do big things through you. But over the next 500 years, the story of Abraham's family goes up and down. And they don't really follow God that well. They're not a blessing at all. To God. In fact, because of their own doing, they end up in slavery in Egypt. And so along comes the next guy in the story, Moses. And through Moses, God rescues his people from Egypt, but also does something so important. He reminds Abraham's family who they are and what God's call on their life is. Listen to this. It's going to come up. Exodus 19, they've just escaped from Egypt. They're not in the promised land yet. They're in in the wilderness, but God's bringing his law and he's bringing his promise. And Moses says from God to them, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are Abraham's family and I have big plans for you. And he gave them a a tent called a tabernacle that was where God would reside on earth. So God was going to reside with these people. And that's what Moses reminded them. And over the next 400 years, God gave them the promised land. and, And they pretty much did nothing right. But through their failings, through their fallings, God continued to work in them, continued to build in them. And the next big character we get is that God gives them a king for Saul and David, then a a whole line of kings. And he gave them a city. And he gave them a temple in this city. 
So Jerusalem wasn't just the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was the place that would house God. The temple was where the glory of God was. And these people were to host the city and to host the temple and to proclaim him to the world. But <laughs> we know that they constantly turned away from the God that they were supposed to follow. Even though they had this incredibly high calling, even though they knew in theory who they were, they kept on fading away to, to, the, to the ways and the practices of the people around them. And God warned them because of that. He said, if you keep following the, the ways of the people around you, I will withdraw from you. And I'll let you be conquered by all these no other nations around you that hate you. So follow me, follow me. But they continually turned away. And so God sent prophets again and again to call the people back to him and to remind them who he was. And every once in a while, there was like this mini revival happening. Yes, we're going to follow you, God. And as soon as that one person died, they went right back into sliding. And it wasn't even minor things. The thing, they were starting to do the things that the nations around them were doing. Temple prostitution. They were wor worshiping God through, pro or worshiping the gods through prostitution. They were putting their own people into slavery, and they were even sacrificing their children to the gods that were around them. Pretty significant things. These were the things that God judged the nations around them for. And so after 400 years, God kept his promise. And first, the Assyrians conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Babylon conquered Judah. And then, this is way too much information, but in 586, Babylon not only destroyed and conquered the people, but they also destroyed the city, and they also destroyed the temple. And that's important because destroying the temple was saying, I am no longer with you. I am no longer present among you. These are the people that God called to represent him to the world. But even though they were conquered and even though they were sent into exile, a small minority into Babylon, God still sent prophets to them to remind them who they were. And we all know this verse. After a few years in Babylon in exile, when many of their friends and family were killed or dispersed around the world, God sends Jeremiah and Jeremiah says, tells them, God says, I know the plans I have for you still, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Yes, your city's been destroyed. Yes, the temple's been destroyed and I've withdrawn, but I still have a plan for you. And it's now that we're about to enter this story again. God allows the Babylonians to be conquered by the Persians, and the Persians allow the, allow the Jews to go back to the promised land. And we're getting into the 5th century. First, some go back and rebuild the temple. The temple's there again. God can dwell among us, although it wasn't like the first one. And then another group of people go. Ezra goes back and restores the priestly order, tells the people how to follow him, and develops priests again in the nation. And that's where we're entering now the story in 445 BC. Next slide, Jacob where we're going to meet Nehemiah. So that's the Old Testament in five minutes. Nehemiah is a Jew 
that was in exile. His family has been ex- had been exiled 150 years ago, so his great-great-great-grandparents. And he was a Jew with a really important job. He was cupbearer to the king. But as we enter the story today, Nehemiah is going to get some news. News actually he's probably heard before, but news that's going to rock his world and break him. Is that way too much information or are you with me? <laughs> yes and yes, hopefully. So let's get into Nehemiah with all that in mind. The story of the Bible where 5th century BC, God is still working. He's still moving. And Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. I was cupbearer, verse 11, I was cupbearer to the king. And after seven words, I want to stop. Because I think this is a really important point. Nehemiah was a Jew living in Persia. He was a descendant, as I said, of the exiles, but he was the cupbearer to the king. Now, okay, he's the guy that gave the king drinks. (laughs) That's not that important, right? He was the guy who was responsible for the king's wine. So when he went to the king, if the, he was the guy making sure that it wasn't poisoned so that the king wouldn't get poisoned. So first of all, he had to make sure the wine wasn't poisoned. And then after he made sure that, he had to taste it before the king get it. So it had high responsibility, but it was fairly high risk. Lots of people wanted to kill the king. But it's more than that. Because most historians would tell you this was a position of a, a lot of influence and a lot of power in the kingdom. He had regular, daily contact with the king. And this is what I want to remind us. This is what reminded me this week. Nehemiah did not get to that position by accident. That position was years or decades in the making. Never underestimate how the job you do today and how you do it today could set you up for what God wants to do tomorrow or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. The way you do your job today, no matter what it is, you may hate it or you may love it. The character with which you carry it out the excellence with which you carry it out, the trust with which you carry it out, the humility with which you carry it out will set you up for your next job and for your next role and for your next day. And everything you do will set you up for greater position or to be able to speak or not speak for the king. No matter what you do, people are looking at you and going, he's trustworthy, he's humble, he does ever, she does everything with excellence. That is a person I'm going to listen to, or she doesn't, he doesn't, and that is a person I am definitely not going to listen to. How you do your job today, especially if you hate it, will be what sets you up to have influence for the king. And that, I think, is huge. 
And then Nehemiah continues. Continuing verse 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was at the citadel of Susa, basically it's in the winter, and he's at the winter palace with the king. Verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have burned with fire. So they're in the Winter Palace. He's in a beautiful spot just north of the Red Sea in Iran. This is 140 years after the exiles, after Jerusalem's been destroyed, after the exiles uh, have left. It's about 90 years after some of them have returned. Ezra just left 10 years ago to go back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah stayed to do his job. So it's interesting that, that nothing Nehemiah hears is probably new to him. There's been people going back regularly. He knows that Jerusalem was destroyed. He knows it was an absolute devastation. But for some reason... When he hears it today, God grabs his heart and breaks his heart for the state of the world around him. Verse 4 says this, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah already knew these things. But today, he sat down and wept. Today, he was broken to the point that for some days, he sat down before the God of heaven. What's going on in our world that you've noticed? But it's just out there. It's something else. Part of the challenge with our world today is the 24-hour news cycle. So all we get is bombarded by all the crisis in our world. And when someone hits us with people we were, that we're connected to, like Ukrainians, all of a sudden it hits us strong. Or when someone, something hits us in Donegal on our own land and 10 people are dead and 20 other, 10 other injured, it hits us in close. But how much is going on in our world that we could just get so numb to in, in Ukraine or, or in Yemen or in Afghanistan or in Iran or in Nigeria? And we can go on and on and on in our 24-hour news cycle. But have you ever known something and you've known about it and you've known about it, but suddenly it hits you right in the heart or it hits you right between the eyes? We live in a town that we know has problems, like every town and every person in the world. But a few weeks ago, I was remi reminded so clearly of the reality of that. Mike, who I don't think is here today, Mike and I were going to deliver a bed to a guy um, who'd been living in an apartment for a year because of estranged partners and broken relationships with his kids and prison and a whole bunch of things. And, for that year, he's, he's only had a two-seater couch, and he's been sleeping. That's all he's had, and he's been sleeping on that two-seater couch for a year. So we were going to deliver a bed to him. 
You don't imagine that people have nothing other than a two-seater couch. And there's a big story behind that. But that was just one part. So we're going to deliver the bed. And in the midst of that, another situation happens with a real mental health challenge and breakdown. And we need to respond to it with some other people. And the police are involved. And that's happening. And we're looking for this person. And then another person we know in the midst of that is struggling with paranoia and anxiety and, and connected. And we're responding to that because it's connected and broken. And how do we help these two people? And then in the midst of that, across the way in this house, this fight is breaking out, and there's screaming, all sorts of voices going on, screaming back and forth, and you can literally hear people being thrown against walls and mirrors breaking, and it's horrific, and the police are coming to that, so some police are coming to this house to solve with this problem, and I'm directing police to another house to solve that problem, and I'm sitting there going, this is Balna Hinch. This is the world we live in, and I know that's an extreme night, but those situations individually and smaller and bigger are going around along every day. That's the broken world I live in. Do we want God to reveal the reality of our world today? Do we need him to break our heart for what breaks his or do we want him to break our heart for what breaks his? Nehemiah realizes the state of the situation with his people. They're in devastation. And it says, For some days I mourned and fasted. Two, three days, four months. Nehemiah mourned and fasted. And I think this is really important. There's so much loaded in this first chapter. This is really important to understand. Nehemiah didn't go, I'm a powerful person. There's chaos in the homeland. I can do something about this. Let's go. No, he recognized, I'm powerful. I have lots going on. I'm a cupbearer to the king, but this problem is so much bigger than me. God, I need your eyes for it. I need your solution to it. What I'm actually going to do right now is sit down, stop, even stop eating, whether that was parts of the day or anything, and pray, because God, I need your solution. I need your voice. I need your power much more than I need my power. And this really challenged me about the call we've been giving to ourselves and us in these first couple weeks of September. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, it's not going to come up, but it says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire God's power more than your power because you don't got it and I don't got it. But him in us is power. Nehemiah is an amazing example to us. What does it mean to eagerly desire? I prayed and fasted for four months when God opened my eyes. As an aside, we're doing wildfires tonight. Doug already told us about this. This is a place not to come pray and fast for four months, although God may lead you to that. 
but to go out of our way to sit and wait on God, to worship him, to listen to his voice, to speak it to each other, to encourage, give courage to and comfort and strengthen the church so we can be the church. What does it mean to eagerly desire? I totally need to grow in that patience of seeking God before I just like to jump into things and normally make them worse. And then Nehemiah goes on. And we're almost at the end here. And he prays, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. What I love about this is Nehemiah is not just praying blindly. God, help us. God, I know you're out there. I know you're kind of big, so help us. He's actually quoting Moses. Moses, in Deuteronomy 7, just before he died, he's given this whole spiel, the whole book of Deuteronomy to the people to give them courage before they go into the promised land. And Moses says to the people, don't be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. So Nehemiah is like, I know you said you're great and awesome one time, so I'm going to remind you of what you told me so I can step into this. I think that's another good reminder to us. When we pray, do we just go, God, help, God, you're all right, or whatever, I don't even know you, I don't know... When we pray, do we seek what God has already told us about himself? Remind him of the promises already made and remind him of the things he's already called us into. You called me into this, God. You told me you're this. So now I need you to show me that you are this. Or do we just go, God, help, because I don't really know anything. And you know, both of those are actually okay. But I love that Nehemiah reminded God of his call. And then Nehemiah takes responsibility for the situation. Verse 6. He says, I confess the sins. We, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly in your sight. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant. Nehemiah is in Babylon. He has nothing to do with that but he still takes it on his shoulders. He still says, God, I'm complicit in this. I know I've done these things. I know I probably would have done the same things that they did. And what I think is so important about this is that this is so opposite to the culture we live in. What's the problem you have? I guarantee it's somebody else's fault. (laughs) Yeah? It's the government. They're not supporting me in this. It's my parents, the way they raised me. It's the way they talked to me or the way they did this to me or the way the way of them. Fiona and I constantly say to our kids, remind them that you are responsible for you. You're responsible for your actions. And whenever they come and say, he hit me or she hit me or they bit me or they did that to me, the question is, well, they shouldn't have done that but what did you do? And the reality is that 99.979% of the time, yeah, they both need to apologize for something. 
But what about those problems that are beyond us? What about those problems that happen so far away? Maybe I wasn't there, but can we say to God, God, I know I'm not much different. I know I probably would have made the same mistakes. I know I have the same selfish attitudes. I know I look at people, things the same way. I know I say the same things to people. God, forgive me. Forgive us. We need your work here. I love that Nehemiah gives us this amazing example of humidity, humility. And then he continues to pray. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them back to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and mighty hand. Again, he's saying, God, you made these promises to us, and I'm counting on you to solve them. You've already told me this. I'm not making this up. This is not just my idea. And then he concludes his prayer. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And next week and the weeks to come, we're going to see how Nehemiah doesn't just pray this, but puts his life on the line to step into it. And that's a huge amount of information because it's the introduction to everything. We won't do that every week. But I just want to leave you three questions as we sit with this first prayer. Do you see the brokenness in our world today? What issues has God put on your heart? What has he maybe burned in your heart long ago that you've forgotten? Or what has he putting in your heart today? Are we willing to take the time and the space to really see them? I love Caroline Curry reminded us a few years ago when you ask someone, how you doing? Follow that up with, how are you really doing? <laughs> and are you willing to take, which is tough, the time and the space to hear that? Or to let them hear you if you're really not doing well. Do you see the brokenness in the world today? Are you willing to take responsibility for your role in it? We love blaming anyone and everyone else. And sometimes it has not, nothing to do with you, but you're human. And what would you have done in that situation? I love the, 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 um, it, the example Nehemiah gives us is just coming humbly and broken. Psalm 51 gives us another great example. David says, have mercy on me, O God, 
because of your unfailing love. Create in me a clean heart and restore a right spirit within me. Are you humbly facing the issues in our world or in your family or on your street? And then finally this. What are God's promises and what are your opportunities? Nehemiah quoted a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies for his people, the people of Israel, but there's even bigger promises on us. Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. You, if you're in Christ, you are the light of the world. God will flavor and give light to this world through you. That's a promise on you. Luke 4, Jesus said, I have come that good news will be for the poor, freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, oppressed will be set free. That was Jesus. But in John 14, 12, he says, whoever believes in me will do greater things than these. That's a promise on you. God put the restoration of Jerusalem on Nehemiah's heart. He's probably not going to call you to that. But he will always call you to something that is bigger than you, whether it's a conversation or a societal change, because he doesn't want you to see how great you are. He wants you to see how great and wonderful and loving and gracious he is. What a book. What a challenge we're going to have in the next number of weeks. Let me pray, and we're just going to worship, and then we're going to close. I pray that maybe simply inspires you to get into the book of Nehemiah and read what God has for you in it. Lord, over and over again, you show us these characters that are so far from perfect, but who you did great things through. Lord, help us to humbly face you because we need you desperately. Help us to see what you're doing. Help us to seek you and help us to step into it to see how great you are, King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.